So we're in this series called Good King, Bad King. It's uh, from 1 Samuel. It's kind of closer to the front of your Bibles. Or if you just type in 1 Samuel in your browser, you'll get there. Uh, we've uh, just finished chapter 15. And uh, basically in this series that we're going through this fall, we're looking at two kings. One was uh, a really bad one. His name was Saul. Bad king. Bad king. Uh, he's just lost the throne last week. Uh, he... Uh, has been deposed by the God who gave him uh, his kingdom, and uh, uh, things are going to head in, in a very bad direction for the bad king Saul. Uh, but we have lots of lessons to learn from him. He's a cautionary tale, and we want to uh, learn from his mistakes. There's a good king. He's going to be introduced to us today. His name's David, and uh, he's the next king in line for the throne of Israel. Um, I say good. He's not perfect. In fact, he, uh, he blows up in a pretty spectacular way a little bit later in his story, um, but better than Saul, absolutely, and a good king, therefore. Uh, and we want to learn from him and, from him and his successes. Let's watch today uh, as he is anointed. Uh, uh, we uh, left out last week uh, with uh, uh, Saul actually being commanded in chapter 15 to go and do something. He fails to do it. He, he uh, is supposed to wipe out a, a people called the Amalekites and leave no survivors. He keeps uh, the king, Agag. Everybody say Agag one more time. Agag. It's a fun name. It's a fun name. Um, uh, Agag is spared as a trophy for uh, King Saul, and then uh, King Saul allows his soldiers to keep from the, from the flocks of the Amalekites their very best animals, which was explicitly against God's command. And so this is the reason that God has now um, rejected Saul, the Bible told us, and uh, that's where we pick it up. Here at the end of chapter 15, a prophet grieves is where we begin uh, it says that Samuel, after the events I just detailed to you, uh, left and went to a place called Ramalama Ding Dong. Not true. It's just called Rama. I don't know why I do that every time I read that word in Scripture. It's just fun for me. Please forgive. All right. Uh, so a town in, in Israel called Rama. Samuel goes there. Saul goes up to his house, which is in a place called Gibeah. Uh, and and Sam, It's in the tribe of Benjamin. And Samuel does not see Saul again. Ever until the day of Samuel's death. And, and Samuel grieves here in the story over Saul, over the, over the things that have transpired, certainly in, in the last account where uh, Saul fails and God rejects him. Uh, Sam grieves over those things. And the Lord regrets that he has made Saul king over Israel. Sam's in a bit of a rut. Who's been in one? Anybody been in a rut? Uh, they, they happen in life. Life doesn't go like we expect, and uh, the result is a bit of discouragement, depression even. Uh, the whole thing with Saul has been the cause of his bring down. Um, I, I, I take kind of some solace in this. I'm not happy that Sam's not doing well, but uh, at least I know that the Bible's honest about people when I read this kind of stuff. Like, uh, if, if I were writing the Bible, I wouldn't put any of the failures in there. Make the Christian religion just this, you know, for sure you know, lock of everything's great, you know, everything comes up roses. That's not the book we got. We got our heroes constantly blowing it and constantly feeling the effects of their, uh, the, the world, the broken world that they're in, and, and Sam's no different. Uh, Sam is feeling it uh, in the wake of Saul's failure. He's not a robot, this guy, this prophet, this, this uh, man of God. He's probably wiped out on lots of levels. Let's start with this one. Uh, perhaps he's grieving Saul's failure and, and what it's going to do to Saul himself. We, we don't have uh, you know, explicit uh, 
you know, language to, to say this about Saul and Samuel, but you got to guess that over the years of working together, they, they had an affinity for each other, right? Like even though Saul was constantly messing up and somebody worked with someone like that, like you go to work and, and you kind of, you know, look, there's Larry and, and, uh, and, and he's kind of going to do Larry things, but he's on your team. He's a part of you, you know, it's, uh, it, it's kind of hard not to feel bad when they're not doing well. And, uh, perhaps that's what's happening. Is this the son that Samuel's never had? We could wonder that. He's disappointed for him, even as he's disappointed in him. He was most certainly uh, bummed out by the fact that Saul's decisions have have brought some judgment on Israel itself. Uh, Israel has uh, time and again kind of just swum in the swum, swam, swum, swim, swimmed. They were in the wake of Saul's failures. They just kind of, you know, like, like so many people, they were, they were in the circles, the concentric circles of effect. I was watching the football game last night between Alabama and Texas. I don't, whatever. Uh, I, I didn't have a, okay. I didn't have a, didn't have a team. If, if I did have a team, I was probably rooting for Texas. I lived there for like nine years. Uh, but I didn't care who won. I liked both of them. Uh, but but I, I was marveling at uh, the end of the game. Texas did win. I was marveling at the end of the game. It was in Alabama, and the, and the camera would sweep over the crowd and all these dejected Alabama fans. It happens at every game, right? It happens at anybody who's losing, the camera goes tight on their faces, and they're just like, oh, gut punch. Oh, no. How are we going to make the, oh, the bowl series? How are we going to do that? Uh, and, and they're just, you know, one loss. A home loss is just like, in college football, enough to just finish the season for some of these teams. It's just, and so uh, I was watching this happen and thinking, well, that's probably how the people in Israel felt. Their king makes these dumb choices, and because of his dumb choices, you know, there's going to be a, a, a season of uncertainty. I don't have this, you know, I don't have the paper from the, you know, the, 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 the Ramalama Ding Dong Times or whatever, but... Uh, which you can guess on the day after Saul is deposed from the kingdom, the stock market dropped, right? And people were wondering what's going to happen next. I mean, there's this promise of an ex-king, but who's that? If it's not one from Saul's line, who is it? And yeah, Samuel's probably mourning, grieving for what uh, is, has been beset upon the people of Israel. But, but listen, here's what I think has happened most of all. He's grieving for himself. Like, he gave his life. Well, from an early age, if you've read the story with me in, in the first few chapters of 1 Samuel, uh, his mom, Hannah, drops him off at the temple. He grows up at church. Like, you guys hang out for an hour a week. He lived here, right? And he just serves the Lord faithfully his whole life. He, he acts as the leader of Israel, and Israel comes to him and says, we don't want you anymore. We want our own king like all the other nations. That's how Saul gets his job. Samuel is rejected as the leader of Israel. So he's got that disappointment. And now this king who God has anointed is again rejected by God himself. And Samuel's just standing there. Like, what am I supposed to do? Everything continues to fail. You know, it's hard on, on leaders, on shepherds, who do all that they knew to do for them to watch the people that they lead and shepherd, choose the wrong path. I can testify to this as your leader and shepherd. I'm thankful for the many of you who with me search God's word and, and, and seek to you know, bend in his direction, but too many times in my 19 years of doing this, I've sat and prayed and implored with certain people to choose God's way and not their own, and they just go, and they leave. 
I've raised children who have done this. Come on. It's hard. It's hard to lead on behalf of God and watch people walk in the other direction. That's why the writer of Hebrews pens this in the 13th chapter of that book, verse 17. He says to the followers in that letter, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have, have to give an account. Let them do this, what's it say? With joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you and it would certainly be a bummer for them. Yeah. Saul's got plenty to grieve. Samuel, excuse me, has plenty to grieve. But in verse 1 of the next chapter, verse 16, turn there with me. God's had enough. Anybody grateful for a patient God? Who's, who's glad we got a patient God? Okay, flip side, who's glad that every once in a while God's like, all right, enough? Yeah, that's, that's where he's at. That's where he's at with Sam. Okay, Sam, I know it's been hard. I'm sorry, disappointing. I know it's part of it. I get it. But this is what he says to him in verse 1. How long? How long will you grieve, Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? How long are we going to do this? I think it's time to stop. Okay, Sam, time's up. Uh, he, he's almost uh, in... in in another way, saying what the son of the next king, who's going to be introduced today, a guy named David, his son Solomon writes a big chunk of your Old Testament. And in a book called Ecclesiastes, in chapter 3, he writes this list of things that there's time for. It became a really popular song in the 60s. For every season, turn, turn, turn. Yeah. Uh, it's basically quoting the Bible. And it says in verse 4, there is a time to mourn, but guess what? There's a time to dance. And I love that he basically juxtaposes these two things and, and does it through the whole list. There's time for this, but there's time for this. And he, he gives basically th this fair allowance for mourning. Everybody who understands me when I'm saying these things, please understand this. You need to mourn. When things break, that should rest on your soul. There should be weeping, as it says in another part of the list. You should have times when things aren't awesome. Just part of your healing process, psychologically, physically, emotionally, spiritually, right? But it shouldn't go on forever because there's a right amount of time for mourning and then there's a get back to it time and let's dance. That's what God says to his prophet. He says to him, hey man, fill your horn with oil and go. It's one of my favorite little phrases in the book of 1 Samuel. Hey, Sam, let's fill up that horn. What do you say? Let's go on to the next thing and quit worrying about or wallowing in the last thing. I play golf, not well, but I like it, and here's what I've learned. I play better when after I've made a bad shot, I forget it. It's hard to hit the putt on the green if you're thinking about the shot from the sand. Actually, it wouldn't be on the green if it was a bad shot from the same. But anyway, <laughs> if I'm thinking about the last bad shot, I'm about to make this bad shot. And then guess what? When I think about that bad shot and the bad shot before it, I'm going to shoot this one into your house. Sorry uh, if it hits you while you're having your coffee. But that's just what happens. It's impossible 
to walk in a straight line moving that way if your body and your focus is focused this way. And so God says to his prophet, hey man, let's go. Fill your horn, I'll send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. You know Jesse over there in Bethlehem. For I've provided for myself a king amongst his song, uh, sons. Get busy with living life for me, God says to Sam. Hey, man, I know it's been a tough season, but let's go. Fill the horn. Get busy living life for me. I was very careful on how I phrased that. Because a lot of times, Christians listen to message and they're like, yeah, I'm so grateful that I get to have life with God. Like, that's what Christianity is for a lot of Christians. It's life with God. All the blessings, none of the effort required. I was... Uh, Talking to my son Cooper, actually he called me and he said, Dad, I, gotta have, you know, I need to have some time with you, I want to talk. I said, well, let's go to lunch. It was a couple Saturdays ago. Let's go to lunch, we'll talk about all the things that are on your mind. He's like, great. So he pulls up in our house, uh, parking lot. Parking lot? Driveway? What do you have? Anybody got a parking lot at their house? It's a big house. Nice, way to go. He pulls up in the driveway, right? And he's getting out and I said, let's get in the truck and we'll drive somewhere and have some lunch. Well, right after he pulls up, Another car, a familiar one, pulls up behind him. He's a roommate with his brother, Ben. And Ben asked Coop, hey, where are you going? He's like, I'm going to have lunch with Dad. And Ben's like, done. Yeah, I'm in. <laughs> Never asked him. But Ben knows that for this 29 years that he's been on the planet, anytime Dad's gone to lunch and he's gone too, he hasn't had to bring his wallet, right? <laughs> it's a good thing for me. We'll all hang out. It'll be great. And listen, as a dad, I'm fine with that. My kids still come to my house. They do their laundry at my house. They use my laundry detergent. They eat my food, right? Anybody been there? You're like all excited to have the last piece of pie, and you're like, Cooper, ah, right? <laughs> last night I'm sitting there, and my son Ben's about to go play a show wherever he's going, and he goes in my toiletries and takes my deodorant. What is going on? <laughs> he takes my deodorant. I'm like, where are you going with that? I need it. Ah, right? And I'm like, fine, I get it, you're my kid. And God looks at us as his children and says, fine, I get it, you're my kid. But there's more. This isn't just a with me existence for all that you can get. This is a for me existence. For all that you'd accomplish in my name. We exist here at Baylife to be followers who make followers to the glory of God. And if you're just settling for the be followers part, Find another church, please. Go be a follower somewhere else where it's nice and cozy in their chairs. But if you're going to be here, be a follower who is on mission with God. Amen. Fill up your horn and go, people. Wherever it is to whoever it is. Get busy with living life for God. Hmm. Sam's totally with God, but he's currently in this rut that he's in, just not busy doing anything with him or for him. And that describes us. Certainly, many of us might be here today. We're disappointed with how life has worked out. I get it. And mourn those things, rightly. But then fill up your horn and go. Some of you might be distracted with other things. I think that's most of us. That's America. I just don't have time. Okay, stop it. You have time for the things that matter most to you. And if God isn't on your list of things that matter most to you, then that has to change. And I'm not saying you gotta like go to seminary or you know, become a monk or something like that. I'm not saying that. 
I'm saying you have to have the mentality that my first priority in life is not me, certainly. It's not even my family or my friends, although they're more important than you. It's my God. And I honor him with what he's given me first. We're disappointed, we're distracted. Sometimes we're doubtful of our knowledge and abilities. I don't know if I can do that. You can't get over yourself, God can. Sometimes we're distressed by the what ifs and the yeah buts. It's an anxious culture that we live in. We don't know how things are gonna go work out. You're right. But a faithful person submitted to the direction of God is how the world has experienced changed since the beginning and how it always will. Sam's ready to go now, but he has a question before he does. Verse two uh, reveals it. Sam says, hey man, how can I do that? If Saul's here, uh, hears that I'm doing this, he's gonna kill me. This bad king that you last chapter just said, we're done, he's not gonna be excited about me anointing his successor. It'll be seen as an act of treason and I'll be finished as your prophet. And so this is what God says to him. Okay, take a heifer with you, that's a cow, I think, yeah. And say, I have come to sacrifice the Lord. A heifer was used in multiple different uh, sacrifices. Some of the books I read this week think it was a, a sacrifice that's detailed in Deuteronomy chapter 21. That basically is a, like a sacrifice given for uh, an unknown crime uh, being committed in a community. I don't know if that's the case, but a sacrifice is going to be made. Um, he says, do that and invite to the sacrifice uh, Jesse and his family, and I'll show you what you shall do. Just set it up. You'll anoint uh, for me from him uh, whom I declare to you that will be the next king. Verse 4, so Samuel does what the Lord commands, and he comes to Bethlehem, which is a huge player in our story in the scriptures. Christmas, anyone? Who was born there? The pastor asks you a question. Say Jesus. <laughs> yep, Jesus is born in Bethlehem, and Jesus is a descendant of this king, David, that we're meeting today. It's all, it's the whole story threads together. It's beautiful. But here in this time, Sam goes to Bethlehem to anoint the son of Jesse. Now, you ever read the Bible and been like, hey, wait a minute, did, did God just tell his prophet to lie? You ever done that? You ever read the Bible and been like, whoa. The, the God who says in his commandments not to lie just endorsed the deceit of his prophet. Now, uh, I, I would say to you that's, that's not what's happening here. In fact, the, the, the Bible has in, what, in it what I call a righteous subterfuge. It's basically... Uh, uh, telling a, a, a lie or, or doing something that seems underhanded for a greater good. Let me introduce you to some of the concepts that kind of fit this. Um, like, let's just start real benign. Anybody ever been to a surprise party? Who's been to a surprise party? Anybody in here? Okay, the person who's being surprised, did you lie to them? Like the whole day? Like the whole month leading up to it? You'd be having phone calls, making texts. What's that? Nothing. The day of the party, where are we going? Oh, it's just you and me, we're just going out to dinner. Liar. Were you, were you in offense of God in that situation? No, you were doing something uh, that was seemingly deceitful that led to a greater good. It was a righteous subterfuge. I, I was in Holland and I went and visited the home uh, that Anne Frank and her family was hidden in during the Holocaust. Uh, were, the, were the rules of the land that you were to 
basically expose any knowledge of, of Jews living in, in that, that, that country? Absolutely. It was under a Nazi regime, and, and you were supposed to be upfront and honest with it. But uh, Anne Frank and her, her hosts told lie after lie after lie as they hid in the upstairs of that house. Was that evil? No, no, I get, we got to be careful because some of you are like, cool, awesome. I can say that I'm doing this for righteous reasons and it's okay. Like last week I told you, everybody go rob a 7-Eleven and then come back with all the proceeds and we'll give it to God and we'll do something great with the money. Praise the Lord, amen? <laughs> no, that would be horrible leadership on my part and sin on yours because you can't just throw a, a righteous sticker on everything and make it okay. But in certain situations, go to the Bible, you got Rahab, who hides the spies during the conquest of the land. Uh, you got uh, secret churches meeting right now or uh, meeting later in the day as the clock kind of winds around our globe. Uh, secret churches in places where uh, Christianity is outlawed. And they are disobeying the rules of their country and gathering together. Is that evil? No, I think that's pretty good. I was in China about 20 years ago, more than that, 25, and uh, uh, I was hanging out there with some college students, and we were studying at the university in, in view of maybe coming as exchange students. No, we weren't. Sorry, China. We were lying, because we just had to say that to be able to get into this university, be able to talk people about Jesus so that we could hand those people off to the Christians in China to see them come to Christ and hopefully be discipled and become a part of the church there. We had to wrap our Bibles, this is back when books were all you had, wrap our Bibles in, in paper bags so that if they were, our bags were searched at the airport, they would just see them and just keep going. We, we, would, we would gather in the evenings after sharing the gospel and, and building relationships on the campus uh, during the day. We'd, we'd have dinner as a group. There'd be 20 of us Americans uh, hanging out in this Chinese restaurant. Really good Chinese food in China. Anyway, uh, uh, but then we'd go... Uh, We'd go to the meeting where we're going to debrief for the day, but when we left, we had to leave over the course of a half an hour, two at a time, taking different routes around this city neighborhood so that we would never arrive at the same place at the same time, and that hopefully the people who would be you know, contacting the secret police wouldn't say, hey, there's a bunch of American Christians going to school here uh, for the couple weeks, and, 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 and they're here to do the work of Jesus, which is illegal in our country. I mean, it's like being in a spy movie. But was it wrong? No. So, Sam's told by God, hey man, and he, listen, he did the sacrifice. It's not like he lied. He did everything that he was supposed to go do. It was just, this was the cover story so that God's purposes could move forward. And Saul, who was a wicked, bad king, wouldn't act in wicked, bad ways and thwart the will of God. Are you with me? The elders of the city come to him uh, as he's arriving with this cow and they ask him this question, hey man, are we good? Do, do you come peaceably? Uh, I read lots this week as, as to what this might you know, uh, derive from. Uh, certainly uh, as, as the prophet and as the judge of Israel, um, uh, during his uh, time in office, Samuel has brought bad news to different communities. Uh, if you just go back a few verses in the Bible, he's taken a sword and hacked to pieces the king of the Amalekites, Agag. Uh, he wasn't messing around. And so his appearance, hey, welcome to Bethlehem. Are we good? Okay. Yeah, do you come peaceably? And Samuel says in the next verse, yeah, peaceably I have come to sacrifice the Lord. Consecrate yourselves. 
clean up and get ready for the sacrifice and come with me to, to make this happen. So he consecrates, he goes to Jesse and apparently tells Jesse, hey, there's going to be something a little extra for you and your family. He consecrates them personally and his sons and he invites them all to the sacrifice, which will eventually turn into a meal. I don't uh, have time to explain all this, but oftentimes when the sacrifice, like a cow is offered to God as a sacrifice, portions of it would be burnt in his honor, and then the meats, the pieces that they would keep aside, some of those would go to the priests, and then others would be actually uh, eaten by the family, like the Passover lamb uh, would be eaten at, at the end of Passover by the family. So uh, there's going to be a, 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 you know, a barbecue, a potluck, and, uh, and, and this is the meal that's going to uh, basically follow the sacrifice. Now, they're there at the meal. And this prophet, uh, who had, uh, you know, at the beginning of this chapter been kind of dejected, uh, grieving, uh, now he's going to be a prophet who assumes. Because he's hanging out, he knows the mission, find the next king, and he's sitting there getting ready to have this meal, and here comes the oldest son of Jesse. When they came, verse 6, it says, he looked on Eliab, and he thought, up, oh, got him. Surely the Lord's anointed is before us. Uh, he was looking at the exterior. Uh, firstborn, we're going to find out that he's handsome and tall, uh, which was a previous requirement for the king that was being deposed. Saul was a, uh, a handsome guy, it tells us in chapter 9. He stood head and shoulders above everybody else. And, and so knowing this about the first king, uh, Samuel looks at the first son of Jesse, sees that he's tall and handsome. He's like, look no further. Here we go. We got him because he's like us. He judges people uh, uh, with their, their exteriors first. First impressions. Anybody ever made one that was wrong? Yeah, you see someone from afar and you're like, oh, that guy's this way or that woman's this way. But then you get to talking to them and you're like, they're not like that at all. Now, before Eleanor and I uh, became an item. Uh, when she first got to the school that we shared, uh, she saw a guy uh, across the, uh, the quad uh, who had, uh, and I know him, he's a pretty good friend, uh, he had Calvin Klein model good looks. Like uh, back in the day, you know, Calvin Klein was, it doesn't matter. Anyway, he was a good looking guy. <clears throat> and, uh, and, and so she saw him, we'll call him Carl, and she just was smitten by Carl. And, uh, and so she just made it her mission to kind of be wherever Carl was and maybe, you know, have, a, have this chance opportunity. Oh, hi, Carl, you know, to, just to get to know Carl. And, uh, and she tells his story, you know. Before you, Mark, there was Carl. But then I, I, I finally had this, this opportunity to talk to Carl, and he opened his mouth and started speaking, and I was like, oh, no. Because <laughs> Carl had this really high, whiny, peachy, you know, Carl was like, hey, how you doing, Eleanor? It's good to see you. How's your freshman year going? Delightful guy. But it sounded like he'd swallowed one of those squeakers from a, you know, a dog toy or something like that. And Eleanor was like, yeah. And she went with the deep-voiced version that you have now. <laughs> Praise be to God. At least I had that going. Excuse me. But I understand this firsthand. Listen, I was hired here 19 years ago, and it took everybody a minute to believe that I was the senior pastor at Bay Life Church. Like, I would meet people, 35-year-old me would meet people, and they'd be like, really? You're the senior pastor at Bay Life Church? It was really hard not to be offended. It's like, 
am I too jolly looking right now? Like, uh, I mean, I know I'm a bit heavier than most guys. But, but listen, people just have this expectation of what their leader should look like. And they put that, they imprint that. When I, when I was here the first year, I got this sweet card. At least it started out that way. Uh, it was a, a gift card to Men's Warehouse, $300, 19 years ago. That was like $312. Anyway, uh, but it was like this, this gift card, and I, I opened it up, and I was like, oh, my goodness, someone just loves me. They did not. Because uh, they wrote in this note, dear pastor, this money is for you to go and buy for yourself. And then they listed off the items that I needed, a suit coat, a tie, a pressed shirt, and some slacks so that when you preach God's holy word, you'll look the part. Something to that effect. And I'm like, well, I'm not buying those things. Anyway, uh, uh, <clears throat> and I was offended immediately, but then I thought, you know what? Listen, everybody's got their own idea of how something should look and be, and if I'm not that for someone, they'll find the place where they can look at a skinny guy in a suit, say things that tickle their ears, just... I won't. That's fine. But can we all agree that looks can be deceiving? Like if all you're doing is basing uh, your opinion of someone on how they look, uh, we got sayings for that. You can't judge a by its cover. Why? Because sometimes the book is empty, right? I mean, that's just happened in Israel. They had a tall, good-looking guy for king for, for years, but there wasn't nothing going on up here and certainly nothing going on in here. So probably the most famous verse in this entire book comes next. Samuel sees Eliab and he's like, ah, oh, it's him. And God comes to Samuel before he can blow it. <laughs> he says, whoa, Sam, put the horn away. Don't look on his appearance, verse seven. Don't look on his height or his stature. Because I've rejected this son of Jesse. Not in like a complete sense, but just as far as king goes, that's not our guy. I know he looks like the guy, according to you and probably everybody else. But he's not the dude. And then he says these words, perhaps the most famous from this entire book. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the, say it with me, the outward appearances. But God looks on the heart. It's a huge statement. It, it, it carries out throughout scripture. Lots of ugly people serve God in the Bible. Paul, not very spectacular looking, not even eloquent, but he ends up writing half our Bible or half our New Testament anyway and, and planting most of the early church. Uh, God says, hey man, cool if they look great on the outside, I care what's inside. And so we have this statement, it's huge, and it can be taken at least in two different ways. The most common, and certainly a right rendering of it, is that God is concerned with interior quality, character. He looks at the heart of the ones that he chooses, goes beyond the exterior qualities, and judges the levav, which is Hebrew for heart. On God's scales, um, Things like thoughts and emotions and certainly intents. These, matter, uh, out, these matters outweigh all the other aspects of human life. God's calling Sam here in this situation and us as we read about it to a life of discernment that goes beyond the exterior and looks to the heart. 
Another way of putting that is, is this. See what God sees as you're living life for him. Everybody, fill up the horn and go. Get busy living life for God. But as you're doing that, see the world and the people in it with the eyes that God can give you by his spirit. It's the same message that Jesus was given to his earlier followers in the book of Matthew chapter 10. He says this in the 16th verse. He says, behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Dangerous, dangerous world. So be wise as serpents as you're being innocent like doves. Certainly be humble servants and, and seek to honor those around you. But remember to have a discerning eye, to be wise like serpents. Serpents use their eyes, certainly, but their, their big thing is their tongue. Has anyone ever read a book? Anyway, uh, uh, they use their tongues to just kind of test what's going on in their environment. And here's why he said be wise like a serpent. He wasn't talking about being like tough like a serpent, cobra, cobra Kai. You know, he, he wasn't talking about uh, uh, being, you know, uh, you know, aggressive like a serpent. Go out there, nah, you know. What he's saying is like, hey, a serpent knows when to go. Like you ever, you ever like walked up on a snake, picked up your trash can or something like that, and he was just kind of under there? And sometimes, with, if they got the pointy heads, they might, you know, do something different. But if they're just an average run-of-the-mill kind of garter snake thing, that guy's going. Like, he doesn't want you and him to have a conversation. He, he has sensed the danger, and he is gone. And this is what Jesus is saying to his followers. Have discernment. See what I see as sheep amongst wolves. Uh, God comes to Samuel in our story. He says, hey, Sam, slow your roll. Don't be so quick to just judge from the outside. See what I see. Look at the inner quality of a person's heart. So that first one's about quality. But this second rendering, which I just discovered for the first time this week in my study, is interesting as well. They're both true, but you could take that same Hebrew phrase and translate it a little bit differently. The language will bear it. And it carries out this idea that we see throughout Scripture as well. God not only looks at the heart of those that he chooses, but he also chooses those who are on his heart. Get this. You can translate verse 7, that last part, this way. For the Lord sees not as man sees, for man sees according to the eyes, but the Lord sees according to his heart, the ones that he will choose. When it comes to, to picking the next leader of Israel, God has determined, not by birthright or by appearances, but by knowing the heart of David, certainly, but by knowing his own heart. This is my plan. Have you ever wondered why, why does God do it that way? Has anybody ever asked that question of the Bible? Like, why would God do it this way? Why has Jesus got to die on a cross? Why would he do it this way? Listen, we can connect all the dots as much as we want, but the final answer in that question is, because God said so. That's just what he chose to do. And quit trying to make everything work mathematically. It's just his choice to do what he does with whom he chooses to do it. And it may befuddle us and it might not fit our system. But in the end, God chooses who's on his heart to do what he's called them to do. David is on the throne for years when he sits down and reflects on what God has done for him. He's just been told in 2 Samuel 
uh, chapter 7, uh, that his, uh, his uh, son is going to build for God a, a house of his own, the temple. Solomon's going to build the temple. Woo. And, and he's also told that later on in his line, there will come one who will bless the entire world, and that's Jesus, Bethlehem, all right? And, and he's, he's just trying to wrap his head around this, reflecting on being a, a shepherd out in the fields on the day that he was anointed. He wasn't even at the dinner. He's like, how have I gotten here? And this is what he says. He says, for the Lord, excuse me, that was the last verse. Ha. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, as he's praying, who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? He goes on and he says, yes. He says, and yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God, this, this blessing that you've put upon me. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. That's, that's the Jesus part. It's not just going to end with my kid. It's going to culminate in you bringing the Savior of the world to earth through my lineage. He says, uh, and this instruction uh, that comes from man, oh, mankind, oh Lord God. He says, what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O oh Lord God. I love that part. God, you know me. I know me. I, I'm not qualified to be who you've made me to be. He says it's because of your promise. And here's the part. And according to whose heart? To God's heart. That you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. I had nothing to do with this, David said. I was the last born in my family watching a bunch of sheep in the field. And you sent for me and brought me to the, to the dinner where all my brothers were rejected before me. And you anointed me the king of Israel. How did I get here except that I was the man your heart chose? Quality, absolutely. As you're living your life for God, see things as he sees them and look for the quality that's inside as you discern life moving forward. But sovereignty, get used to it. God is the chooser of our, of our destinies, of our lives. He's the allower of the hard things. He's the bridge through them, praise God. He's the grantor of all good things and in charge all the way. Samuel's been roused, get busy. He's been reminded, see what God sees, and now the process unfolds. I'm going to read these verses Pretty quick, they just tell the story. So there they are. Eliab has already been rejected, just as king. God says, no, it's not him. Don't look at the outside, look at the inside, Samuel. And so Jesse calls his secondborn, Abinadab, and he makes his secondborn pass before Samuel. I don't know if it was like a beauty contest. Anyway, uh, but he says, no, neither is the Lord chosen this one, and so Third guy, third son, Shema passes before, and Samuel says again, nope, not him either. And so Jesse makes all seven of his sons that were present pass before Samuel. And Samuel says to Jesse, nope, the Lord hasn't chosen any of these guys. And so Samuel turns to Jesse in verse 11, and he says, is this it? Are you out of sons? Is this all of them? And Jesse says to Sam, no, nope, there's one more. He's the, and the actual Hebrew word is smallest, shortest. Uh, 
we translate it here and can, it's, it, the word will bear it, youngest. So he's the, the last born. And because he's the last born, he's the youngest, therefore the shortest. He's probably like 12, 14. I mean, he's a middle schooler. And that's why, you know, no one wants to bring their middle schooler to a dinner, right? Sorry, middle schoolers. I'm just kidding. You guys should go. Anyway. But, you know, the middle schoolers, he's out in the field watching the sheep. This isn't for him. He, he's next door in his class. He's not hanging out in here. <laughs> he says, well, why don't you send for him? Because we're not going to sit down to this barbecue and have anything to eat until he comes. And so that's what happens. So they send for this kid who still hasn't been named yet. Has anybody noticed this? David hasn't even been named yet. We haven't heard the name David yet. He says, go get this unnamed youngest. And he comes in. And this, this middle schooler, it says it's ruddy. It's the Hebrew word for red. It could mean sunburnt, which would fit. He's out in the fields, right? Could mean tan, which wasn't necessarily a good thing in the Hebrew culture. It proved that you were one of the, the servants. You were having to do kind of the menial tasks. Could mean that he had red hair. What's up, gingers? How's it going? David might have been one of you. Now, that was actually a, a prestigious thing in, in that culture. Almost everybody was dark-haired and dark-skinned. If you had red hair, you were special. But whatever the case is, he's ruddy, and then there's those next qualifiers. Handsome, right? Beautiful eyes. It's not hard to look at. He's young, but you can kind of see there's something there. Raw, right? But all that doesn't matter. Because what matters is what happens next. God says to his prophet, hey man, that's what we filled the horn for. That kid right there, that's him. Anoint him, for this is the next king of Israel. And that's what Samuel does. He takes the horn of the oil, he anoints him in the, the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushes upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rises up, and this is it. He just goes back uh, to Ramah, Lama Dingno. That's the story. David is anointed. doesn't say uh, really anything after that, right? When Saul was anointed, he had all kinds of questions and protests. David's just like, cool, oil, all right, fine. King, guess so, if you say so. Uh, but that's all we got. David is now. Next in line for the throne of Israel. Just one thing as we close today. And I hope this is an encouragement to you. Yes, we should get busy living our life for God, not just with him. Yes, as we're living our life for God, we should have his eyes to see the world with so that we discern where we should be and where we shouldn't. But then finally, as the president of the least of these club, let me, let me say this to you. God loves using the least likely for his greatest works. It's one of my favorite parts of the Bible. It's always the beta male that gets chosen for the most impossible or most amazing things. Moses couldn't talk, you're my leader. You go back to the stories of the patriarchs, starting with Isaac, second born. First born was a guy named Ishmael. There we go, I forgot Ishmael's name. But then Isaac has two kids, Esau and Jacob. And who's the, who's the one who gets the birthright? Second guy, right? And then Jacob has a bunch of sons. 
And who does God choose to use to move his story forward to get the, the, the descendants of Israel, of Jacob, out of uh, the, the Canaan and into Egypt where they could grow and become who they became as a nation? Like 11th son, Joseph, right? I mean, it's just over and over again in the Bible. God uses the least of these. Even our Savior, what good comes from Nazareth? He was born in a barn. And he's the savior of the world. Now here's why that should just encourage us, because I'm staring at a bunch of least of these. And when I look in the, in the mirror, I'm looking at the president of the club. Just so you know, I have no business being up in here in front of you every week. Absolutely zero. There is nothing in and of me that should be leading in the church of God in any way. So you're like, what's he talking about? I'm not being weird. Just stay with me. What I'm saying is that none of us is special, spectacular, worthy, but God has chosen, as Paul tells us as he writes the Corinthians, he's chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He's chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He's chosen what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are, so that, as he finishes, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This whole story with God, the, the, the narrative of the Christian uh, you know, faith is predicated on him doing, and by grace us receiving, him choosing, and by grace us going. It's all about him and the least of these. Hi guys, that's us. And he chooses to use us on the regular to do amazing, amazing things. So now, may you and I not be just living life with God. Let's go live life for him. Fill your horn, Bay Life, and go. I don't know who that's to or what that's about, but you got to drive home to pray about it. Write it down. Make it an actionable step and make it happen. Get going. No more excuses. Fill your horn and go. As you're going, see things like he sees things. Be discerning. Look at the heart. You know, I can't, <laughs> I, I, I perish at the thought that there's so many times where I'm just too busy or I'm just not seeing things with God's eyes and I miss these opportunities that he has for me to make a difference in someone's lives and I just slide right by them. Let's, can we all pray that God will help us see like he sees? And then can we all rejoice that God uses the least of us to do great things in his world? That doesn't make you kind of smile a little bit. I don't know what will. Can you stand with me as we close this, our time in prayer? Josh is going to lead us in a song. I'm going to go get ready to dunk a bunch of people. I hope you'll hang out with us. We got some, we got some uh, ice out here, some Christian ice, Kona ice, whatever it is. Uh, you can enjoy that, as spoil your lunch or whatever, but uh, just come and hang out and rejoice with these who are being baptized. Can I pray for us? Yeah, God, I just summarized everything I said, but I'm going to pray it over us anyway. Lord, help us to be about uh, life for you, not just with you. Lord, help us to see like you see. And Lord, thanks for using us, the least of these to do the things that you want to accomplish for your namesake. Use us this week, I pray, for your glory. And I pray it in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Everybody sing. I'll see you out there.